Hey there friends, and welcome back to The Longest Night, which is a little show about the HBO series Game of Thrones. My name is Rob. My name is Lizzie. And together we are making our way through all 73 episodes of Game of Thrones, me for what feels like the 100th time, and Lizzie for the very first time. You can find us on Twitter, we are at LongestNightGOT, that is at LongestNightGOT. So if you want to carry on the discussion over there, then come and visit us. And I'm also one of the moderators on the NARTH subreddit, so if you fancy coming for some more in-depth and spoiler-filled discussion about the show, then by all means head over there. The music that brought us in today was by a good friend of mine who I've actually featured on the show before. His name is Edward Thomas. He has just released a new album. It's called Exorcism, and you can find that on Bandcamp if you like a bit of very meticulous and noodly acoustic folk, then Mm. by all means go and check him out. I'll leave a link in the show notes where you can go and listen to it and buy it as well if you're so inclined. Lizzie, meant to ask, how are you this week? You feeling all that immunity spreading throughout your system now? Yeah, yeah, I'm good this week. Um, Because I know I mentioned last week I was feeling a bit under the weather after the vaccine, but yeah, it's funny, like immediately after, the day after, I just felt fine. It's like nothing had ever happened. I was happy to get vaccinated in the first place, but I think just that 24 hours was a bit of a shock to the system, maybe. Well, really, yeah, it is a shock to your your whole, your immune system specifically. Um, Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's a sign that it's working and your body's trying to work out what to do with itself and that... Indeed. By this point, uh, you know, immunity should be racing around you. (laughs) Fingers crossed. All right, then, we'll we'll get on because this is the season finale and we don't want to wait around. This week we are going to be discussing Season 2, Episode 10 of Game of Thrones, which is entitled Valar Mugulis, which is the season finale. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss and directed by Alan Taylor. It was first broadcast on June 3rd, 2012 to an audience of 4.2 million people and it's the first Game of Thrones episode to jump over the 4 million mark. Uh, Lizzie, what did you make of it? Um, not a bad episode by any means, but you can tell at a couple of points in this that they're really sort of hurrying to tie up those loose ends from the season. And I think it shows particularly that we know from last week that we spent all of that time in King's Landing. Yes. And because of that, it feels like they're having to squeeze a lot of events from, I think, particularly Karth, there's a lot of stuff that you would usually have spread over a couple of episodes that they've had to just cram into this one. So, yeah, not a bad episode by any means, but you can tell there's some some stuff that I wish had room to breathe. Yeah, it makes you realise how, I don't know, big the books are, I guess, that you have to, mm. you know, as soon as you give, as soon as you give priority to a battle you suddenly lose out in the next episode and it's about the necessary sacrifices and yeah, all that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah, I kind of agree. I think that, you know, there is a lot of rushing around last week. I think we visit every single point on the map where a character is. Yeah, it's true. Which is like 10 places. I think there's eight locations, but then within two of those locations, there are two separate storylines. So it's that counts as nine and then ten so that's yeah ten ten storylines that we follow uh mm. in this it's the longest episode since the pilot um but i think as much as it's yeah feels a little bit breathless and it feels like it's rushing around a little bit i think that it's still full you know this is obviously from a rewatch perspective there's lots of key moments here loads of characters going beyond a point of no return oh yeah um, yeah Hard to ignore how many scenes, like, this is just me, hard to ignore how many bits of this episode are referenced or have larger consequences later on. Mm. Um, I mean, I love particularly the two two or three stuff, the two or three scenes in this episode that I love uh, a lot is all the stuff at uh, Winterfell this week. Mm. Um, I love Daenerys' visions in the House of the Undying. Um, 
and Rob's wedding to Talisa. I, I love all of that. Um, I think the atmosphere of those scenes is great. Mm. And I love some of the words and the dialogue and especially the performances, um, especially Maester Lewin. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. But having said all that, I, I think that it's not a finale that people jump to. Mm. I think that season two, as I've been saying throughout this season, it's structured very differently. And I think it's shown in these final three episodes where... You have season two, episode eight, which felt like more set up right before the end. And this feels like they've had to wrap a lot of stuff up, but also do the heavy lifting for the start of next season as well. Lots of new storylines opening up in this episode, as well as trying to tie up old ones. So, yeah, I think this episode has a lot of work to do. And I think in spite of the work that it has to do and in spite of the rushing around that it does, I still still very much enjoy this episode. I think it's one of the stronger episodes of the season but not one of the strongest by any strongest by any means yeah and i think um you wonder how much of that is us being spoiled by the last episode exactly there has always got to be a come down of some yeah, kind and yeah. i'm always willing to uh, give it the benefit of the doubt in that way um now we have a lot of places to get to so um <laughs> i think we'll start map hopping how about you <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's go Where's your god now? Will he save you? Where's your god? Inside you. Did we yeah. need to see Stannis this week? It seems very sudden that he's back there, but I, I, I don't know. I still think there's something in the scene to be taken from it. But I, I do kind of agree it could could have been left over till the start of season three. Um, And the question I'm asking is, does Stannis actually see anything in the fire or is it just an illusory truth effect? Yeah, um, it's one of those that I think it will be answered at a later date whether he saw anything or not. Yeah, fine. Um, mm. I like to think that in the moment... He wants to believe that he's seen something and regardless of whether he has or not, it's the belief that he wants to see it that makes him see whatever she may have shown him, whether he has the gift or not, uh, or whether the Lord of Light chose him to, you know, show the vision to. Well, yeah, there is a line later in the episode and I don't know whether to mention it now, but I do feel it's somewhat relevant. In the, um, in the scene between Maester Lewin and Theon, uh, Maester Lewin says, you are not the man you're pretending to be, and to which Theon replies, but I've gone too far to pretend to be anything else. And is, is Stannis at that stage himself, that he's gone so far with this? Yeah, I like that theory. I like, I like where you're going with it, and I actually think it's true. I think that Stannis had already gone too far by the start of this season, really. I feel like he's so committed to wanting that throne that iron throne that he'll do anything to justify his claim to it and as just as a straight show watcher and like me too when i was watching season two what what are your impressions of stannis generally how how do you feel about him this season well again he feels a little bit like theon in this season to me and that he's been led astray by this exterior force and like you mentioned a couple of episodes ago, like the angel and the devil on the shoulder. And it is that sort of side of his conscience that's swaying him towards, um, not necessarily evil, but to to try and convince him that there's a higher purpose to his actions. Um, I, aside from that, though, I don't know if I have strong feelings on him one way or the other. And... I've, I also know for a fact that I was much more keen on Renly. And you, you know how disappointed I was when he eventually got killed off. Yeah, you were disappointed mm. um, about Renly. I guess I sense in your voice a little bit that, <laughs> oh, could it not have been Stannis? Why, why, did it, why did it have to be <laughs> Renly? Could Renly have not led the charge on King's Landing instead? Well, not but... so much that. I just thought there was more to their rivalry that didn't, get explored it was just that that kind of one scene on the hill and then next thing Renly's dead Mm. yeah it's a bit of a shame but what can you do I have a question for you both 
and I want you to answer at the same time. I count to three, you both answer. What's his name? One. Two. Three. Brienne is escorting Jamie to King's Landing and she finds the bodies of three women hung up in a tree who were lynched by Stark soldiers for laying with lions. Mm. Uh, the Stark soldiers then come around the corner and they identify Jamie as Brienne's prisoner, but Brienne, <laughs> badass that she is, manages to fight them all off and kill them. She then buries the women and Brienne reminds Jamie that she serves Catelyn. Mm and not House Stark. Yep. So we'll talk about that scene first, because there are more scenes in the Westerlands, but we'll talk about the Brienne and Jamie stuff first. What have you got for those two? Well, that last fight you mentioned about Brienne not explicitly siding with the Starks, that she, you know, she's there for Catelyn, not the Stark, the Stark army. And mm. you wonder if that's another sort of, indirectly maybe a f- another flaw of Rob's admiration of Talisa who we is sort of a would you say like a pacifist maybe yeah i would say definitely so i mean talisa might be less of one now because she's a bit mm, smitten mm. and someone's value system can certainly change for love but i think that brienne is as we've already seen she's a fiercely loyal person but to the person that she's sworn an oath to she's tried not to swear to houses she's trying to stay out of the politics of it and just do the right thing for a person that she's met and she's trying to judge them based on who they are to her rather than who they might be based on their standing Mm. i I mean i feel Um, like i should i should explain my point a bit more it's like it seems like the stark army are kind of taking advantage of what we presume are innocent vulnerable people in their travels so you know the the women hanging in this case the women who'd been lynched and so that combined with the whole reason why Jamie is having to be escorted by Brienne in the first place due to the fact that he'd been kept in prison for so long and it's clear that they weren't they weren't doing anything with him he was just he was just there like a, a pawn not really being used for anything other than we have Jamie, what are you going to do about that? And it's that another kind of weakness of his leadership is that his lack of planning in this regard has led to this situation where Brienne is having to defend Jamie, even though I'm sure that given the choice, she wouldn't. And you wonder if Catelyn has secretly expressed to Brienne some doubts about Rob causing her to be a bit reluctant to side with the Starks explicitly. I also think as well, a wonderful thing that this scene does is Mm. that it makes the point that there are thousands and thousands of men in Rob Stark's army, and we know what men in this universe are like. I mean, we know what men in our own universe are like. Oh, yeah, yeah. So a handful of them are going to be, at least a handful of them are going to be nasty Mm. and they're going to be capable of murder and they're going to be capable of doing terrible things and it just adds that layer that we support Rob's cause but what about the individual causes of all the people that are following his cause and Mm. we are following Rob's intentions and we are right behind him Mm. but how do we know that there aren't members of... Well, we do know now that there are members of his army that just kind of just hate people who live in King's Landing and just hate Lannisters and hate people who... It's, it reminded me a lot of... Um, there's a scene in... I don't, have you seen any of Band of Brothers? No, I haven't, no. There's this scene in Band of Brothers where the American soldiers liberate a German or Dutch village. And it's a huge celebratory mood. And one of the women in the village is exchanging uh, eyes. Kind of this, Her and a soldier are kind of eyeing each other up. And he's trying to follow her through the crowd. And then she gets manhandled and grabbed by a bunch of men. And she gets thrust towards the forward of this crowd. It's a great scene. Mm. And the camera follows 
this soldier's perspective of as he looks through the crowd and tries to find this woman and there are a, a bunch of women being forced to the floor and they're all having their heads shaved because they lay with the enemy they lay with german soldiers and this is their punishment oh yeah and that's that's based on reality yeah exactly yeah happen. yeah um that you know that's something that actually happened and i feel like that band of brothers didn't commit to it as much as maybe game of thrones did about um maybe not humanizing the enemy but well game of thrones does a very good job of that but i think that um adding layers of darkness and complexity to the good people i think that band of brothers definitely achieved that and did that but um because game of thrones isn't playing with real history i think it can commit further it can commit Mm. further to it um and i think that we also in this scene we get a chance to watch brienne be a massive badass for the second time where she's uh fighting off a bunch of people she's definitely won't want to cross her oh god no no (laughs) i mean jamie's walking a bit of a tightrope (laughs) Doing his uh, more more mocking and more jokes. <laughs> yeah, and again, I think we've mentioned before that he, he knows he can do that because it's like, what are you going to do, kill me? Where well, would that exactly. leave you? I mean, Brienne doesn't want to... I mean, Brienne, I'm sure, doesn't really want to kill Jamie in her heart of hearts, but one of the main reasons that she doesn't is because she takes her oath very seriously and... Yeah, yeah. She would be betraying this oath if she were to dispose of Jamie, tempting as it is. <laughs> um, elsewhere in the Westerlands, Rob confides to Catelyn that he is in love with Talisa and that he will not proceed with the arranged marriage to House Frey. Uh, but despite Catelyn's warning that, you know, this is Rob's oath, uh, Rob quietly marries Talisa in a ceremony in the forest. And it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. What do you make of this little thread of the of the Westerland storyline this week? Well, I don't know if you mentioned before, but can you blame Rob for not wanting to be set up in an arranged marriage, knowing what happened to his sister? Yeah, um, I think that that is an interesting conversation that Rob and Catelyn have where Rob argues in favour of following his heart and Catelyn's saying that, well, me and your dad had an arranged marriage and we worked at it and it's still love, it's just a different kind of love and it's, you know, it's a solid foundation of routine. And (laughs) um, But Rob is young and... Yeah. He is at war and he's fallen in love at war and... I think anybody could sympathise, you know? Oh, yeah, and, and and if you're supposed to be a leader, what sense does it make to have your own mother marry you off to some stranger? Yeah, precisely. Um, I should say the wedding scene itself um, is, like I've mentioned it before, it's one of my favourites of the episode. Um, mm. It gets copied a lot in real life. Um, there are a lot of people who, when they're up there at the altar or in a reception office or whatever um they do the binding of the hands with the ribbon and, oh right and okay. the um, mother father mason crone whatever it is um it's uh i mean if i were to i mean i'm planning to definitely get planning to get married to my partner if we were to have a wedding in the future it's something i might consider suggesting could we do this? Because it's very, very pretty. I wouldn't remember all the words, but I would like to have the ribbon. Yeah, um, it's a very... I wouldn't remember all the words. It's one of the the rare sort of warm scenes we get in this show. You know, is that, a, is that an odd thing yeah. to say? Or is it... No, definitely not. We don't get many warm scenes in the show at all. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them are very frosty and unwelcoming, but this is just... Yeah, um... We've said we said um, end of last season that you don't often see pure, genuine love and affection in this show. It's 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 quite brutal and vicious most of the time. So to to see this wedding go off basically without a hitch, which how often do you see that on television in general? One of the most basic dramatic devices, and that if there is a marriage, something has to go wrong somewhere. Yeah. Like, admittedly, it's not perfect. I'm sure Rob would have preferred Catelyn's blessing, but it's, it's as good as you can get. The girl has many names on her lips. 
Joffrey, Cersei, Tyburn Lannister, Ilim Payne, the Hound. Names to offer up to the Red God. She could offer them all. One by one. I want to. But I can't. I need to find my brother and mother. And my sister. Outside Harrenhal, after leaving Harrenhal, Arya, Gendry and Hot Pie come across Jack and Hagar once again. Uh, he offers to train Arya and give her his abilities to kill people almost at will. But she declines and says, you know, I've got to go and find my family. Hmm. So, as a bit of a token of goodwill, um, he gives her a special coin. And the phrase, which gives us the title of the episode, Valar Mogulis, hmm. uh, which she, if she wants to find him at a later date, that's what she can use to find him. He then reveals, though, that Jacken isn't actually a real person. He's just a face. Mm-hmm. And he reveals this by changing his face um, in a very creepy moment. Um, what did we yeah, what did we make of that, that kind of stuff? Well, before that, the main thing I picked up was that Jack and Hagar mentions that he's from Bravos. And he is from Bravos. There was a previous character who was from Bravos. There is a previous character who was from Bravos. A previous character from Bravos who had a close connection to Arya. Yep. Yeah. Interesting that, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, def- it's definitely um, around this time. That is not uh, an uncommon theory. Mm. It may be uh, something that's answered at a later date. Well, I, I, I was going to could... say, it's, it's bound to be, because Jacken mentions to Arya when he gives her the coin, he says, you have to give this to any man from Bravos and say the words Valar Morghulis. So, yeah. we've not heard the last of Bravos. Okay, no. Um, <laughs> Unless they drop the storyline, you know. Uh, well, we'll have to see whether they do or whether they don't. Uh, it's very difficult difficult for me to answer this question, um, or not answer it. But, yeah, there was, um, there was a theory around this time, and this isn't... I'm not commenting on whether this actually happens or not, but there was a theory mm. that there may have been a connection, either strong or tenuous... Between Sirio Pharrell and Jack and Hagar. Oh my God! Yes. There, there, there was a theory. Mm. Not going to say whether it comes true, but you are definitely not alone. Um, the showrunners and writers enjoyed playing up to that theory, mm. even in the first season, because obviously you have to remember that when they were writing the first season, the fourth book was out, and the fifth book was about to be released. Mm. So they had all of the context of the first two books. And so they, when they were writing Sirio Pharrell's character, they did lean on the fact that he was from Bravos and that Arya may have a connection to Bravos in some way or another, whether it's through Sirio Pharrell or Jack and Hagar or whoever this Jack and Hagar person is that changes the face <laughs> or whatever. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll say I'll say no more. But en- enjoy living with that theory for a while because a lot of people enjoyed that theory too, and you're definitely not alone. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that theory. Um, again, whether it comes true, it'll be answered at a later date. Yada yada yada. Um, aside from that, in the scene, I think you mentioned face changing, and I wonder if that somewhat explains how he was able to get away with the killings mm-hmm. if he was just able to okay. sort of morph into another appearance and the actual quote unquote Jack and Hagar that we know is just how he appears to Arya okay yeah hmm. questions might be answered at a later date on that one Interesting. who knows eh yeah. who knows <laughs> I will kill that man. I swear to the drowned god, the old gods, the new gods, to every fucking god in every fucking heaven, I will kill that man. They are listen to me. I serve Winterfell. Now Winterfell is yours. I'm bound by oath to serve you. And what's your counsel, trusted friend? Run. Uh, Winterfell is under siege from a, a horn blower. And a few other people, I'm sure. Theon, though, rejects Maester Lewin's advice to sneak out of the castle and head for the Night's Watch. Uh, he believes that if he makes it to Castle Black, John will kill him. Theon then tries to rally his men with a, a, a 
I think it was a good speech, a good rousing speech, but he is knocked out by Dagmar from behind mm. and brought to... <laughs> basically just brought to the forces outside the castle where you're sort of like, oh, here you go. Mesa <laughs> um, Lewin tries to ask what they're doing, but Dagmar stabs him and leaves him for dead instead. Mm. Bran and his party then later emerge from their hiding place and they find that Winterfell has been sacked and that Mesa Lewin is dying in the Godswood mm. from the stab wound. Uh, Mesa Lewin advises them to head for the wall to find John. Uh, before asking Osha to mercifully see him off and kill him. Um, some very sad scenes mm. at Winterfell. Yeah. Some very beautifully sad scenes, I think, at Winterfell. Oh, this yeah, week. yeah. I think, actually, the highlight of the episode is Winterfell this week. Theon, clearly not a fan of the Vuvuzelas. Um, he's, he's talking <laughs> to um, talking to Mace Lewin in that, that first scene. And it's that line I mentioned before when we were talking about Stannis, is that you are not the man you're pretending to be, but I've gone too far to pretend to be anything else. And it's it's true of a, a couple of characters in this episode. You know, mm. for, for Theon, you know, killing innocent children, betraying the family that raised him for many years, but also you can kind of see his see his point of you know, go, imagine going home to your own father and him dismissing you because you were sent away at such a young age. It's not out of choice. But yeah, it's that, that thing again of like Theon and like also Zara to so on Doxos, which we'll come to, and Stannis. It's like how often, when you're seeking power, how often do you have to sacrifice yourselves in order to get close to the end goal, only to find that it doesn't work out as planned and it's... It's too late to go back once the damage is done. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think we have to ring our bell for Theon again mm. this week. Um, <laughs> he is lost yeah. once more. Yeah. Theon is truly lost. Uh, gets great advice from Maester Lewin and rejects it. Um, it's a fantastic scene with Maester Lewin. It very, really is. He's got such a comforting voice, Maester Lewin. Oh, I know, um, I know. Some really beautiful lines and advice in there. Mm. Um but I, yeah, I completely agree about Theon. He is now at the end of that line where you've mentioned where he's pushed himself so far that to go back would be to give in. Yep. And to give in would mean going home. And what's waiting for him when he goes home? If he goes home. Yeah, yeah. Like, so it, yeah, it's. Again, Game of Thrones doing this wonderful thing of making you understand why people make terrible decisions. It kind of forces you into the logic of... And it forces you to look into the psychology of things that you would dismiss out of hand but Mm. reconsider a second time. And Theon, yeah, is in the sort of position where because of everything he's said and done this season, going back would be... I mean, he could just admit that he was wrong, but Theon's not a humble guy, so... He could, but also he's in a position where he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. You know, if you you go to the wall, you're going to get killed by John. If you go back home, you're going to get dismissed and possibly disowned by your family. If you go outside the walls of Winterfell, you're going to get taken by Roose Bolton's men and Rob's going to kill you. It's like... What can you do? You are too far gone, but there's nothing you can do about it. You can't go back because there is no back. Exactly. And I have to say, um, when Bran and Osha and Hodor and Rickon and the two direwolves make it out of hiding and decide to head north, Mm. after the scene with Maester Lewin, that shot of Winterfell burning and smoking is... Yeah. Really hard Mm. to watch. It's very hard to watch. It's painful. Mm. There are, throughout the mid, like, throughout the middle of Game of Thrones, like, this is sort of like, I don't know, seasons two, and it's just right to the end. It's just painful. There are certain shots that are just painful, like, because to us, Winterfell is not just the Stark homestead, it's 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 home. Yeah. It was yeah. the first place we ever went. It was the first place that we ever got to know. They were the first people that we ever got to meet. Maester Lewin was in the like, you know, one of the first scenes and he was 
always a very comforting presence. And mm. like when we were watching, um, we were talking about the end of season one. And I remember you saying that you went back and watched some of the early episodes. And that first episode feels like you're wandering back into some kind of dream where everybody's happy. And to see Winterfell in that state and to have the stark theme play over those images of Winterfell, I had a similar moment in season two, episode eight, uh, The Prince of Winterfell, where you find out that Bran and Rickon are alive after all, and the stark theme plays over the end of that episode, and you get quite choked up and quite teary. And I don't know why I didn't mention it at the time, but it's bone-chilling, and it is at this point as well. Um mm. The plus side is that we finally get something I think that you were looking forward to, which is Bran, Rickon, yeah. Osha and Hodor and the two direwolves on the road. I know. Chatting, I know. eating walnuts, Hodor saying Hodor. You know, it's Osha saying my sweet giant. You know, it's um, that's uh, got, got a lot of that content to come. Mm. At least next, you know, next season, you've got a lot of that to look forward to. If that is a small saving grace. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, there was there was only one other thing I wanted to mention from Winterfell this week, is that it reveals another flaw in Rob's plan. His offer to free any Ironborn that hands Theon over to Roose Bolton's men in the Prince of Winterfell resulted in the death of Maester Lewin. Just I just wanted to mention that, but there's a couple of moments in this episode where they they call back to previous episodes in season two, and yeah, that was one of them. And because of it, we lost one of our better characters. I'm a poor little rich man and nobody loves me, so I make jokes all the time and pay them to laugh. Fuck your money. Let's leave. Leave? Leave King's Landing. They try to kill you, they will try again. Going into wars, fighting soldiers, you're terrible at this. Let's take a boat to Pendles and never come back. You don't belong here. Right, in King's Landing, in the aftermath of the Battle of Blackwater Bay, Tyrion wakes up in new chambers. He's informed by Maester Pycelle that he is no longer Hand of the King, and Maester Pycelle gets a little jive in about earlier in the season, giving him the coin, Uh, but fearing for his life after surviving a murder attempt, Tyrion learns that Varys will have to briefly distance himself from him in order to save his own skin, and Shay offers Tyrion the chance to leave for Pentos, but Tyrion declines, stating that keeping his family under control is, is what he's best at. In the throne room, Tywin has arrived and is named Hand of the King in Tyrion's place. Littlefinger is given command of Harrenhal, thank god I have got out of there, and Sansa, mm. much to her relief, is cast aside for the newly arrived Marjorie Tyrell, who will now be betrothed to Joffrey. And Littlefinger then offers to smuggle Sansa out of the city, but again, she declines an offer to leave. And meanwhile, Varys visits Littlefinger's brothel and attempts to bring Roz into his service and away from Littlefinger's. So, yeah, loads of stuff in King's Landing this week. What do we make Mm. of it? Well, um, first of all, can I just say I hate Mace the Facel so much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, it's it's one of the only times we've, we saw it at the end of season one, but again, you get those glimpses into how he really is. He's not this sort of wizened old man. He is quite, he's quite nasty and scornful. And if you if you try and cross him, you won't hear the end of it. No, there are. Game of Thrones also masters writing characters were very annoying and always seemed to win. The playground bully just is Teflon. Everything rolls off him. Mm. You cannot insult him. And so, yeah, Maester Pycelle fills that role beautifully in this episode where he is not afraid to act how he actually is. Doesn't do the whole withered nonsense. He's just acting exactly as he is. And I think that when he throws the coin to Tyrion as a callback to earlier in the season when Tyrion leaves the coin mm. for the sex worker that Maester Pycelle is with for your trouble, uh, Maester Pycelle gets the little jibe in. Um, it's a moment that really gets under my skin. And the fact that yep. Tyrion has been 
heroically, you know, heroically saved the city, but has been demoted in response. There's a wonderful line mm. from Varys, though, which sticks out to me, and it's my favourite line from the episode, which is, um, the, it's sort of like, you won't be in any songs and the histories won't mention you, but we won't forget, which... Yeah. Finally, after, I think, two seasons of trying to work out what Varys's game is, I think mm. we're starting to see Varys as the more preferable spy, if you will. If you want to compare him to Littlefinger, I think at least he's shown personal loyalty to Tyrion. Yeah, yeah. Whereas with, with Baelish, you never really know where his loyalty lies. No. He's sort of he's a bit all over the place like that, and we obviously saw it in season one with um, Ned, especially. So it is nice to see a character that we maybe thought was duplicitous and may you know still be at least. There's a bit of humanity showing in Varys now after everything that's happened to Tyrion. The mm. striking thing for me in King's Landing this week is just how red everything is. Everything is red. Everything is so is, red. It? Like, deliberately, yeah. almost artificially red. The throne room, the scene in Littlefinger's <laughs> brothel. Everything yep. is red. So, I mean, I guess, you know, it's, you know, the Lannisters won the battle, so, you know, their colours are everywhere. But, wow, it really dominates certain scenes. Uh, completely changes the, the way that the throne room feels and completely changes the way that Littlefinger's brothel feels. Uh, great editing and lighting work and colour saturation work yeah, with that. I agree. Yeah, no, it was excellent. I agree. Um, uh, although I think that the best show of power in this whole episode, I'm still not to this day 100% sure if it was scripted or not, but Tywin Lannister riding a shitting horse into the throne room <laughs> is like some serious power move. Yeah, and well, riding horse in after it shits on the doorstep. You know, it's it's a very, um, not very subtle sign of, yeah, things are never going to be the same again. The decision to move Sansa aside and also Sansa's reaction to it, where she seems almost gleeful until she has to put on airs again um, and pretend. It makes sense for Marjorie because... Um, she mentions in the Ghost of Harrenhal, just after Renly's died, um, Littlefinger asks, do you want to be a queen? And she says, no, I want to be the queen. She knows what she's wanted from the start. And as much as I'm sure it gusses her that Renly died, her goal is to be the queen. And if, if that's the yes. way to do it... Yeah. I also think as well, I, in that moment, when I first watched it, I was relieved for Sansa because you are sad in the sense that her value mm. has dipped in terms of her being a prisoner. But Marjorie mm. is so much better equipped, you think, in this moment to deal with the politics and to deal... Because Marjorie is already wonderful at putting mm. on a face and playing the game of Thrones. And yeah. I think that... Sansa was okay at it, but we saw earlier this season that there are parts of it that she's just not good at and because she's a teenager. And so having her out of the line of fire is yeah. a relief. I mean, Littlefinger reminds her of the truth that Joffrey can still do with her as he pleases. But now that Marjorie's around, mm. there is an element of... You know, we have more characters in King's Landing that we can... It, it's reassuring, actually, that the Tyrells have turned up. I know that they're kind of in bed with the Lannisters now, but thank God the Tyrells have turned up and that it's yeah, not yeah. just Sansa and Tyrion surrounded by a load of deranged freaks. That's it, yeah. It's not just Sansa having to represent herself. It's You've got, you know, Marjorie Tyrell, you've got... Loris, you've got the whole Tyrell army in this coalition of chaos. So, yeah, it's um, it's a bit more of um, a balanced dynamic than just Sansa Stark having to represent the entire Stark family herself and hmm. being held prisoner by the man she's supposed to marry. Exactly. So, thank God, and I can understand hmm. why she was laughing and smiling about that. Uh, I did want to ask about what you think of 
Tyrion's decision to stay rather than leave. Uh, well, what else does he really have other than the Lannister name? Because I know he's he's lost a lot. He's lost his position as Hand of the King. He's lost, um, you know, a lot of a lot of friends, a lot of a lot of his status, and I'm sure that Joffrey would be happy to kick him to the curb. But yeah, again, if he is just a Lannister by name, then what does he really have other than Shay? I think it does give him a sense of pride to be there and to be the the voice of reason for the Lannisters. Even if if he's not there, then does that give Joffrey and Cersei and Jaime and Tywin free reign to do whatever they please without anybody to be a dissenting voice? But it, it's mainly pride. Thank you, Zara Zoan Doxos. Thank you for teaching me this lesson. I am the King of Carth. I can help you now. Truly help you. We can take the Iron Throne. I'll bring you a thousand please, chairs. Please, please, please. please. All the trees is within your reach. Please, you please. Daenerys, Jorah and Cavaro go to the House of the Undying where Piat Pri's uh, magic traps Daenerys sort of inside the house while leaving Jorah and Kavaro on the outside and after encountering strange visions of herself in a wrecked, destroyed, frozen out throne room and then in a tent beyond the wall with Khal Drogo uh, she finds her dragons and Piat Pri binds her uh, Piet Pri plans to keep her trained with her chain with her dragons so that like they grow stronger in her presence and then he can use them in the future uh, but Daenerys instead orders her dragons to just breathe fire on him and he dies and she gets out and when she gets out she goes straight to Zarozo and Doxos and is like hey and she finds him in bed with Doria, her handmaiden, and he des- and she decides to seal them in Zaro's empty vault, uh, revealing that his claim of wealth was fraudulent all along, and then she and her companions then loot what is in Zaro's house, which turns out to be not as valuable to buy a whole army, but is enough to buy a ship. And so Daenerys has left Carth, the weirdest place in the whole wide world. Uh, Daenerys has left it behind. So, yeah, what about the Carth stuff this week? What do you make of it? Um, Don't get me wrong, there's some very good stuff visually. Um, You know, particularly the whole going from beyond the wall to the tents and and all that, and that sort of brief scene at the Iron Throne, I think. Um... Besides that, I th- I think this is why this feels a little bit like they had to tie up all loose ends in this episode, and it it feels quite hurried. And I know we've discussed, um, you know, her health issues in this season and why she's not in it as much. But I think had I not known that, I would have been quite disappointed by how this ended. It just, it seems very convenient that she's, like, she's locked up and then it's locked up by Pyat Pri and then she she orders the dragons to just breathe fire. It's like, okay, that's fine. It's a, it's a bit convenient, but sure, we'll go with it. And then she finds Zaro in bed and it's, it's an empty vault. I, I, I know I'm, I know it just seems like I'm recounting the plot here, but does it not seem... A bit like we have to get out of Karth, but we don't have very much time, so we have to expose Zarazo and Doxos as a fraud, and also somehow kill off Pyat Pri. And you know, and <laughs> this might seem like rambling, but well, I I do agree to an extent. There is a lot of for me as a rewatcher. There is a lot of value in Daenerys' scenes in this, um, especially the stuff with 
um, Carl Drogo and the stuff with uh, Rago, you know, who's a child who was never yeah. born. Um, and all those visions, like there's a lot of value and meat in those and people obsessed over those scenes for so, 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 so long mm. to try and work out what they meant. And um, it is heavily condensed from the books. She does have visions in the books, but she has like 20 visions and it just goes on for pages and pages and pages. Yeah. Um, that's what all those doors are. You know, like she, has, she has the chance to walk through several doors. Mm. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think the the stuff with Zaro, yeah, again in the books, the what happens is that the House of the Undying, from memory, the House of the Undying collapses, mm. and the residents of Karth are not happy about it, and so there's a whole thing after that. But I think they've just made it. I personally think they've streamlined it and made it more. It lends itself more to television this way, I think. I suppose. Um, and within the budget constraints in that. Yeah. But I do agree that all the stuff with Zarazo and Doxos feels like a bit of an epilogue that's just kind of tacked on Yeah. to the end. And you find out the secret that there's nothing in the vault and you find out that it was Doria who was behind the dra- dragons being kidnapped. Mm. Um, that You know, that she was working with Zarazo and Doxos. Um, but... What I will say is that it is a beautiful atmosphere in the scenes with the visions. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just think that, yeah, that, I mean, I imagine you enjoyed it in the moment anyway. Mm. But so many questions arise from that scene. It's First of all, it's unlike anything we've seen in the show before. Mm. Yeah, I, I just, I think I kind of just wish, again, like they'd, they'd had more time mm. to explore this. You mentioned to me about... Because I didn't know that about the book, that she had something like 20 visions. I think you could have stretched the whole she's stuck in the, the House of the Undying thing to an episode or two. But it's just crammed into this, like, four four or five mm. minutes. And it just mm, it feels like a bit of a waste. Also, can I ask you, when you first watched this, what did you think was in the vault? Um, I thought there was money in it. I think because you you know that's okay. kind of the the personality and the demeanor that Zarazo and Doxus puts on it. He's a very good trickster at making you believe that he's got more mm. value in it. He's got more assets um, than he actually does. Um, but I have to admit, I'm kind of, I remember watching this for the first time and thinking, Jesus, Danny, that's a bit dark. <laughs> leaving them to starve to death it's like okay <laughs> yeah just a bit it's like uh, okay i know that like you know you, you got your dragons back now you could something do something a bit more merciful you know i feel like Piat pre got a better death than they did <laughs> at least yeah. it was quicker yeah um so yeah i feel like um it's it's i think the Karth stuff i think we're all just kind of glad it's over maybe um, it's been interesting, yeah, and I well, definitely don't mind the Karth stuff. It's just been very slight. Um, yeah. Mm. I I asked that question because I, I assumed it would be a tunnel to exit from mm. Karth, like it was a sort of walled city from which no one could ever leave after entering. Ooh, oh, that, that's kind of cool. I, I don't know where that would go, but that's cool. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I mean, it's a way of getting Daenerys out of Karth, so... Yes. Yay, no more Karth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say that I am cheering the departure of Karth because I think it's so... It's so very much its own place in the show, and if the show does one thing very well is that it makes every single place feel incredibly different, and the location scouting and the mm. set design and the way that the, the, the extras even that they get in and... But the, yeah, there are a lot of unanswered questions from Karth, I think, um, that we get mm. like, who's Quaith? Who, who was she? The woman in the mask. Who Who is she? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, how did she know so much? You know. What, what's that then? And yeah, I feel like there's a lot of things yeah. that get raised in this. They're not like storylines or anything like that, but they're just, and I, I do, 
you know, I'm, I'm watching through Lost right now, and there's a show that raises mysteries and questions and kind of just makes you go, look, Oof, yeah. mysteries and questions are part of life. Deal with it. And fair enough if that's the show's philosophy, whatever. But, yeah, I think, you know, there are yeah. lingering questions at the end of this season about the what Karth really was. And mm. but then you wonder, is there any more space that they could have squeezed it into? like, Or could they have got there faster or something? But, you know, we'll never know. And I think that because of the things that went wrong in Amelia Clark's personal life during this time, and because they're just, you know, yeah. humans create TV shows and humans make mistakes and all of that, I think that what we get from Karth is some good memorable content and some good memorable characters that never come back, but... You don't forget them either, mm. and I think that's that's worth something. I think. Yeah, I'd ag- I'd agree with that. It's a good place to leave, Carth. I think. And the thing about you that I found so interesting is absolutely nothing. He's shot on the half hand. They're back. Two blasted wildlings. You're not fighting them alone. Come on. It's the last place we're going to go to this episode, last place we're going to go to this season. Sensing that they are probably going to die anyway, Corin Harfand goads John into killing him, and that convinces the wildlings that John is thinking about defecting to their side. And John is then shown the massive wildling camp that stretches for miles and miles in this valley. And Egret promises a meeting with mm. Mance Raider. So we'll, we'll deal with that first. Um, I think it's a wise move from Corin to because mm. he knows that they're going to die anyway. So he might as well go out killed by a Night's Watch brother. Might as well go out quick. And he might as well get John on side. So mm. for the watch. For the Night's Watch, essentially. Yeah. Um, so, um, I just think that this is perhaps an example of the season running out of time as well. Yeah. It yeah. kind of happens like that. We get the little foreshadowing scene a couple of episodes ago where you think, okay, and then it kind of happens all... Like, was it clear to you what was happening there? Uh, not particularly. I mean somewhat after re-watching it but yeah on my first watch it was a lot to take in mm. yes not only uh, is Corin Halfan dead but John's killed him yeah and also he's just seen this huge settlement of wildlings that we've never seen before and it kind of confirms that the Night's Watch don't really have much of a standing when it comes to the land beyond the wall they are the invaders Oh, okay. Yeah, carry that on. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that, that thought didn't cross John's mind, but surely it was naive of Corin Halfhand to assume that wildling outposts could be destroyed so easily, and maybe he wouldn't have thought that if he knew of the existence of this, you know, enormous settlement. They are aware that the army is forming, but they yeah, they haven't seen the true size. Yeah, the true of scale the camp. of camp. Yeah, I think that this is an example of the episode wrapping up a storyline and also starting another storyline in the same breath. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot to take in. Um, and I think, you know, we look forward to next season when we finally might meet Mance Raider, who has been mentioned <laughs> I don't know how many times, and maybe we'll meet him. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Well... I know you haven't watched Frasier, but he's turning into sort of the Maris of the show. He's just mentioned and never seen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, But elsewhere beyond the wall, in the final scene of the season, Ed, Gren and Sam are shoveling at the Fist of the First Men when they hear three horn blasts. Uh, You say you were right, Chekhov's horns, and Mm -hmm. there they are. means that White Walkers are approaching... Ed and Gren run for their lives, leaving Sam behind. Sam is then surrounded by an army of whites and a white walker who notice him but ignore him. 
And mm. they march towards the Fist of the First Men, where the Night's Watch are camped out, in an attempt to attack them and destroy them. And that's where we leave the season. So what thoughts have you got about this scene? Well, without knowing if the White Walkers are kind of the undead, a bit like zombies, or that they're born that way, I almost assumed it was like a zombified Benjen. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it it might not be. I could be way off, but yeah, right, without then, yeah. without really knowing what the White Walkers are and how they've come to be, that's uh, it's a wild guess I made about why did he just sort of leave him be. All right then, yeah. Mm. Um, that is a question that has plagued Game of Thrones viewers for a long time. Really? Why did the White Walker leave Sam alone? Um, oh. And basically, the theory nowadays is that the White Walker looked at Sam and didn't see him as an immediate threat and just kind of thought that he was pathetic. Right. And so he kind of dismissed him rather than spared him, if that makes any sense. It's not 100% clear. Um, the first time I ever watched this scene, I thought they were attacking the wall. But they're not. <laughs> they're attacking the fist of the first men. And that, yeah, yeah they, I thought they were attacking the wall. And I was like, oh, shit, here we go. But no, it's the fist of the first men. They're miles yeah. north of the wall. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, at least we finally get, you know, the White Walkers are in the building. Mm. This is the first time we've seen a White Walker in how long? Um, well, like, well, properly. I mean, we saw them at the start of the season, but we've not really seen them do anything. Well, we saw one at the start of the season. Yeah. And aside from that, yeah, it's episode one. Scene one. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Finally get to see them go... Or whatever. Yeah. Um, and whatever language they speak. So, other than the wildfire in the previous episode, probably the best sound and visual design of the entire season the white walker himself well that and also the ominous pounding music in the background and the Mm. blizzards and ed and gren just disappearing and the horse with the rotting flesh and the piercing blue eyes and then as you say that scream but yeah that's that's season two we have a couple of things to do before then. First of all, I want your loser this week. Who's your loser? Oh, my loser this week is Dagmar. Okay, yep, that's, yeah, bit yeah. of a prick, and, yep, lives up to his name. Yeah, Knocks out a... Theon and stabs Maester Lewin. It's pure cowardice on both fronts. You know, yeah. knocking Theon out so that he could get away scot free, and then just because he knew he could, killed Maester Lewin. What a prick. Yep, yep. Solid argument there. And who's your winner this week? Uh, my winner of the week is Maester Lewin. Oh, yeah. I I think okay. he oh he so nearly pulled Theon back from you know the depths, but it wasn't to be. But yeah, he well, wins for yeah. for those those couple of scenes alone. All right then. Um. So that that is season two. It's over. Um. In a few days, we'll have the second part of our interview with Sam from Crywolf being uploaded. And next week, we'll have our season review Mm -hmm. like we did for season one, plus a special announcement. We'll be watching the trailer for season three live in the season two review as well. And we'll have all the favorite episodes, favorite characters, least favorite episodes, least favorite characters, all those awards that we handed out uh, in season one. We're going to hand them out for season two as well. Um, you might sense a bit of a change in our season three episodes. Uh, we're going to try and change up the intro a little bit for you. You might see a few, yeah, might detect a few changes there. Mm. Um, the music playing is out right now is from Exorcism by my good friend Edward Thomas. Like I said, if you like very meticulously arranged, noodly, proggy folk, then by all means go and check him out he's cool and we will see you for well i'll see you again for the interview with sam but we'll see you again for the season two review and then looking ahead to season three see you later
Since I went away